father's house have, in that you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah said to all the people and said, How long will your fathers falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today because we know that you are God. Baal is no God. The idols of this day are no God. Idols of money, idols of politics, power, pleasure. God, they they are not gods. They cannot deliver as you deliver. God, we stand before you as a church crying out to you. We're like children knowing not what to do. Our brothers have been kidnapped in Haiti and we love them, Lord. And so we pray for them, God. We pray, Father, that you would deliver them. You would deliver them from their captors. You protect your church as they come together to worship you today. Lord, that no one else would be taken. And we pray over our service today, God. We pray that you'd protect us. We pray for this word that you've given me, God, that it would have its effect in our hearts today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So today I've prepared a message. It's not specifically for fathers um, on Father's Day, but it would be applicable. Uh, I'm going to talk about the topic of being a minister. And being a father is one type of ministry. There are many different types of ministry. One type of ministry would be standing behind a pulpit like this. But being a father, being a mother, being a grandfather, as as Sarah just talked about, all of those are are types of ministries. And so today I'm going to talk with you about being a minister of God. And I'm going to do that through the life of Elijah. Elijah, of course, is one of the most prominent uh, prophets in the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about his experience with God in ministry in three different phases. And so phase one, the beginning phase, is Elijah being the instrument of God. Elijah as the instrument of God. And so here we see Elijah, who was just prophesied to the king at that time, King Ahab, who was a very wicked man, and he's calling all these um, prophets of their foreign gods, which they were commanded not to have, and he's calling them all together essentially for a showdown. And so we'll just continue on in our reading in chapter 18 at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. They can cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but don't put any fire on it. And then I will prepare the other bull. I'll lay it on the wood and again, we won't put any fire on it. Then you guys call on the name of your gods and I'll call on the name of the Lord. 
And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first for you, and uh, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but don't put fire under it. Verse 26. So they took the bull which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they'd made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Hey, cry aloud, for if he is a god, maybe he's meditating, or perhaps he's busy, or maybe he went on a journey, or maybe he's sleeping and you have to wake him up. So they cried louder, and they cut themselves, that was their custom, with knives and lances until blood gushed out of them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two sephas of seed and he put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the wood and said, Now, fill four water pots with water and pour it on my burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Okay, now do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Okay, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and also filled the trench with water. Verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And then the fire of the Lord fell. It consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elisha brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So here in this story, this very dramatic story, you just might imagine just fire falling from heaven, God making it so clear that Elijah is his prophet. How awesome, right? Like just imagine if you had that power, right? People doubt you, they get in a debate with you, you're off doing street witnessing or whatever you're doing. You're like, okay, well, let me show you. Let me just call down some fire. And Elijah did that and it was amazing. And the people repented at the seeing of it and it was an awesome time. Now, one of the aspects of ministry when you're called to be a minister of God 
you're called to be a minister of God, God has to do the empowering. It's not, a, it's not a ministry that you can take credit for. I mean, Sarah was talking about her grandfather and how that fist was held back. Every minister of God has a testimony somewhere of being in a place where they're just not sufficient for what is required and God has to show up supernaturally. In this phase, this phase of ministry, it's learning to become God's instrument. God sets you in a place for a specific purpose for others to see it. Now, I'm going to share some examples today. Some of you know, some of you don't know, but for the past 13 years, I've been doing a ministry for essentially kids and gangs. I uh, am a minister to kids in Lockup, the Department of Youth Services in the Boston area, and uh, I started that back in around 2009, and over the years, I've uh, I, I don't know the exact number of kids I've worked with, but I know that it's, the number is over 500 at this point. Many of those kids meet with me in the community when they come home. I've, I've mentored long-term dozens of these uh, kids. Um, I still call them kids, but some of them are now in their later 20s. In fact, this year, I was able to celebrate 30th birthdays with two of them, which was pretty exciting for me. And um, over the years, I've also housed a few of them. Uh, I think about 10 have lived with me, and some of them have lived with me for many years. So today, I'm going to share you know, bits and pieces of my testimony and the way God has showed up in this thing. So I didn't grow up in gangs. I grew up in a very rural environment. Uh, in fact, my father was a cop, so I was the exact opposite of a kid who you might imagine being in a gang. And yet I knew it was like one of the few times in my life where the calling was so clear, like it wasn't something I thought up. This was God sending me. And so, you know, I show up there and these kids start talking to me and I remember they kept calling me dog. I couldn't figure out what that meant. Like, why would they call me a dog? I think about half of the things they said for the first year, I had no idea what they were talking about. They probably didn't understand half of what I said or more. But needless to say, over time, I learned a little bit of the lingo as I went along. But you know, I didn't have much to go on. I had no experience in the streets. I didn't know about any of these things. And yet, God would show up in different ways. I remember one time, one of the kids I mentored when he came home, he came to one of the men's retreats. And um, he stayed up really late, and I went to bed. And I remember him coming in the room around 5.30 in the morning, going and getting in the shower, and I just felt like the Lord was telling me, get up and pray for him. And so I prayed for him. And later that afternoon, he told me how he was in the shower and he had this vision. And these people were running down on him in this store and shooting at him and he died. And then we learned at that exact hour, his friend, who he would have been hanging out with in Boston if he hadn't been on the retreat, was gunned down in the very same store he had the vision in at the exact time. And just the way God showed up in that. I remember another time just talking to a kid and he'd been locked up over and over and over and he was still meeting with me and he, he thought that he had solved the solution to getting caught anymore. He, he, at that time, he was selling crack and he discovered this thing that the cops didn't know like if he hid the crack in his mouth when he was selling it. So he's like, okay, he's figured it all out. And I'm like, you know... What's it, what's it going to take for you to finally repent? Do you have to get shot? The very next day, that evening, he calls me from the hospital. 
at the exact minute of the following day, he got shot three times. The guy was standing 10 feet from him. I don't know what his aim was about, but he shot him in the arm and two legs, but didn't hit any vital organs. Now, I didn't know that I was prophesying to him at the time, but I can tell you that night in the hospital, he knew that God was speaking to him through me because it happened at the exact minute that we were talking the night before. And I could go on and on with these kinds of stories. I brought kids to this service who just obviously uneasy. I remember one of them would hear voices, voices telling him to kill people. After the service, we went outside and I'd worked with him for many years too. And I just prayed for him. I said, you know, if you call on the name of Jesus, demons have to leave. And do you know those voices went away? They went away. That kid actually has a normal job now. It's shocking. I've seen God do amazing things, things I couldn't do. That is part of that phase of when God calls you to be a minister, he's going to teach you how to be his instrument, and you're going to have to depend on his power and not your own. Because most of the time when he calls you to ministry, he's going to call you to an area that you're vastly insufficient for. And that, that's my testimony. And it's a wonderful thing because God shows you his power. But now Elijah is about to move into phase two of learning to be a minister of God. So let's pick up here in chapter 19 in verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. And then in verse four, but he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. So the second phase of being a minister of God. What a dramatic thing. It's like a whiplash. Here God just called down fire and we kill the prophets of Baal to the very next day, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, and now Elijah's on the run. How could it be that God would bring fire down one day and leave me to run for my life on the next day? He's just observed the hand of God move mightily and now he's asking the question, where did God's hand go? I just mocked the priest of Baal for God not hearing. And now, where is it? Why am I hiding? Why do I have to hide now? And here Elijah is in this second phase, which we're going to explore in a little more depth. What happens when God doesn't do the miraculous? And it's a very difficult time in the life of a believer. I think it's interesting, as an unbeliever, this isn't such a challenge. An unbeliever is not even sure God is real. Right? They don't get too disappointed when God doesn't show up. But the problem is, when you've already been used as an instrument of God and you've seen the power of God and you know that God can do things, when he doesn't do something, when you really need him to do something, how does your heart deal with that? It becomes a very, very difficult thing. 
uh, over the years, I've had the privilege to attend and, and work with different people who've worked in the youth prison system for much longer than me. And I remember a person speaking at the time, and she had worked for a couple of decades in it, and she, she asked the question, it was, it was a fairly small group setting, but it's people who worked in lockup and then working with kids in the community, different things. She asked the question, has anyone here ever hit a wall? I was like, hit a wall? What, what is she talking about? Maybe, maybe I hit a wall. I don't know. What does that mean? And then she just starts to describe. She's like, you know you're called. You know God has led you into something. And then beyond your description, you just feel so like you've hit a wall. You can't go forward. You don't know what's going on. It's like you're in a fog. You're blind and you don't understand anymore. And at that time, I'd you know, experienced a few difficult things here and there, but I was still plowing head, headlong, you know, like, yeah, there were some setbacks, but God was still in this, God was still powerful, and I was still going. And she made the statement that most people in this type of ministry, around 10 years, if they stay in it that long, they end up hitting a wall. And so I just filed that away into my memory banks until 10 years came along for me. And then I really started to understand what she was talking about. I hit a wall. And it was hard for me to try to, like, it, it was a difficult thing to even understand. But as I, like, I process and I look through it, I think, well, what, well, what were the, some of the things that had gone on in those 10 years? Well, out of all the kids I've worked with, and I've lost track of the numbers, but somewhere between 20 and 30 have been murdered, Two of the kids who lived with me had been murdered. Most of the kids that I worked with went on to commit other crimes, including murder, including some of them who've murdered kids that I also have worked with. One of the kids who I worked extensively with in the community, I knew his father, I knew his grandfather, I knew his mother. He ends up murdering his mother. And I'm not a super emotional person, but just like over time, these disappointments like progressively add in the scale of your heart of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And sort of like Elijah, you just end up in this place where you say, it is enough. I, I don't know how to go forward. I'm just stuck. I know God can do great things, but you feel stuck. My mind, when I started this ministry, I had this vision. It was going to be like Acts chapter 2. I was going to preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit was going to fall on them. There were going to be tongues of fire over everybody's heads. People might speak in tongues, and then all of a sudden, they would give their life to God, and the whole city would see the power of God to change the lives of juvenile offenders in a way that they've never seen before, and God will get all the glory. It was a great vision. It was a great plan. But it's really just not how it turned out to be. And now I have to like face, well, this is what it is. So what's going on? Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe ask that question to yourself. Maybe, maybe it's something I did wrong. Maybe it's because I don't pray enough. I love that our church is committed to prayer, right? There's a big push on prayer. But then it's like, pray, pray, pray. I'm like, well... I prayed 99 times for this God. Are you telling me if I would have prayed the 100th time, you would have saved his life and he wouldn't have got shot over there in that parking lot? It was 100 times the magic number of prayer that that would save him? 
Maybe it's because I wasn't pure enough. You know, I have my 13-year testimony of ministry hasn't been flawless. Maybe it's because I don't have enough humility. Maybe I'm not safe to bless with any success in ministry. Maybe if I was a little more humble, then I'd see God do this incredible thing. I remember the kid who murdered his mother. He called me two weeks before he did it, and um, he called me at like 1.30 in the morning and had a very difficult uh, ministry meeting that night. It went on till about many, uh, midnight, and I was just vexed in my soul. I was having a hard time going to sleep, and I had to be at work the next day at 8 a.m., and then he calls me and wakes me up at 1.30, and he's wanting me to come pick him up, and I just told him, I said, I can't. I'm just too tired, and I have to work tomorrow, but I will come see you tomorrow night. And I called him, called him that week, the next week, and, and he was not answering ever. And then one day, it was just a weird feeling. It was just the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to call him weird, but I just knew I was supposed to look up his name on the internet. And, and I saw the news the day before he murdered his mother. And I wonder, you know, well, that, I mean, this is what goes through my mind, maybe things like this go through your mind. Maybe if I would have just picked him up, it would have been different. Maybe if I could have lived on less sleep, maybe if I just could have been enough, then these bad things wouldn't happen. Fortunately, the word of God is so clear. I love that passage in Galatians, right? I came to Jesus because I wasn't enough. That's why I came to him. I knew he wasn't enough. I wasn't enough. He had to be enough. And, and Paul tells the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect in the flesh? I needed to Jesus to save me when I came in, but I need Jesus to be enough for the ministry because I can't be enough. I can't be enough. I can't attend every prayer meeting. I can't be perfect enough. I can't go out every time somebody calls me at 1.30 in the morning. I can't be enough. But Jesus has to be enough. And so wrestling through these things and, and like sorting through it out and feeling not enough. Well, let's pick up in our story again of Elijah. Verse five of chapter 19. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake of bread on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And then he went into the cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So um, I'm using this story of Elijah but fully recognize I am vastly inferior to Elijah in any capacity. Um, but at least in this passage, I don't know where Elijah, his whole testimony was and everything, but he doesn't seem to be struggling with that not enough problem that 
I feel like I struggle with sometimes. He seems to think that he's been doing everything right. He tells God, I'm zealous for you. He lets God know the rest of the children of Israel have forsaken you, that they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets. And he reminds God that he's the only one left. Now, sometimes I wonder if Elijah, and I, I say this with humility because Elijah is a far greater uh, man than I am for sure, but I sometimes wonder if Elijah had an issue, at least at this stage as a minister of God, um, and I wonder if he had an issue with the way he saw God in ministry. You know, you may recall the story, it's, it's actually in chapter 17, where Elijah first calls the drought, he ends up staying with this widow, and the widow, uh, you may recall, she had a child, and God miraculously provided for them. There was this bin of, of flour and oil, and this, it just kept providing itself throughout the drought and fed her, her son, and Elijah. And then, one day, uh, her son dies. And, of course, she's devastated. And uh, I think it's interesting. I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you want. Chapter 17, verse 19 so Elijah says to her, he says to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on this widow whom I lodged by killing her son? Now, it's as if Elijah feels like he's having to defend this woman's son from God who just indiscriminately kills some kids. Um, I don't think that's the right way to look at God. And yet there have been times, I have to say, in my own prayer life where I feel like I'm trying to wrestle God into like loving or caring about a particular young person I work with in a way that somehow God just doesn't have time to take notice. As if God doesn't know that young person's story as if God's not familiar with all the circumstances that led up to a life of crime and all their difficulties and hardships. And we can get in this sort of very um, bizarre phase where it's like we forget that God has numbered every hair on that person's head. I, I'm just an instrument for perhaps a tiny season in that person's life, and God has been vastly invested in ways I have no idea of and that can certainly lead to some frustration when we fail to realize how much God actually cares about the people we minister to. But anyway, this is where Elijah is in his mindset as he stands on Mount Horeb with God. Now, <clears throat> we'll go on and we'll read chapter 19, verses 11 through 18. And then he said, "'Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord.'" And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Verse 12, chapter 19. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he went out out, he wrapped his face in his mantle, he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I find this fascinating after all this drama. Elijah just repeats himself, and he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, 
torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and they seek to take my life. And then God's response in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel. And Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meloah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So this passage, you may have heard it before, it's a very popular passage, particularly when teaching people how to learn to listen to the leading of the voice of the Lord. And the point that's often taught in the passage is we always want God to speak through the earthquakes and the fires and the really dramatic things, but that God speaks to his children through a still small voice. Now, I've heard this passage taught many times, but my question has always been, and I hadn't heard it answered, well, what did the still small voice say? There is a voice that follows with some instructions, which we'll get to in a minute, but that wasn't the voice initially. There was a still small voice, and Elijah comes out to the front of the cave. Now, this particular passage has some very interesting parallels you may recall, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, to the story of Moses, when Moses met with God. First of all, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same name for the same mountain. So this is actually the very same place where Moses met with God. Second, both Moses and Elijah had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights at the time that God met with them. Third, both of these very dramatic encounters are described as God passing by. Uh, in, the, in the account in Exodus, God's passing by, his glory went before him, and this dramatic thing happens, right, with all this cracking and shaking and so forth. In both situations, the men were protected. In Moses' situation, God told Moses, I will hide you in the cleft of a rock. In uh, Elijah's situation, he was protected from all the drama by being hidden in a cave. And so I don't have exact proof to say for certain what that still small voice was, but the parallels in the passage make me think that God might have been repeating the very same words, the only self-proclamation of God about himself in the Bible. I think he might have just repeated the same words he said to Moses, to Elijah. It's in Exodus, we'll put it up on the screen, Exodus chapter 34, verse six and seven. It says, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation interesting passage. It's a passage that speaks of God's sovereignty, really. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have judgment on whom he will have judgment. And it's a very difficult thing for us to reconcile in our mind. 
Why is he showing mercy on somebody that I want him to show judgment? This is the place that Elijah's at. God is still showing mercy on Jezebel and Elijah's like, enough of it. I want judgment. It's judgment time. And it's not happening. And this creates massive conflict for uh, the minister because God's heart is bent towards mercy. And we, do, sorry, we just don't always understand why there are times when God's showing mercy, we want him to show judgment or vice versa. So God does then go on to speak. He lets Elijah know, you anoint these three men. He makes it very clear that these three men will ultimately bring about my judgment. He doesn't tell Elijah that this judgment will be delayed for several years yet. But he reminds Elijah, yes, judgment is mine, and I will give judgment. And then, of all of Elijah's complaints and so on and so forth, God really only responds to one of them. He lets them know, Elijah, you're really not the only one. There are 7,000 others you don't even know anything about, and I've counted every one of them, and I know their names. I know all of them. It's as if God's saying to him, I know more than you. Can we just remember that fact? And so Elijah hits this phase in life, or phase in ministry, where he just has to understand it was great to be God's instrument, but to maintain a place as God's instrument, I have to learn to be content with being God's servant. Servants are given orders. Servants are instructed to do things. And sometimes those orders and those instructions, when you follow them and obey them, it just doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere. A servant just does because the master has told them to do. Not necessarily because the outcome is, is what they want. Servants have to trust their masters in that way. And God is teaching Elijah, if you want to be my minister, you have to be content with just being my servant there are things that you do not understand that I do. Just trust me and do what I tell you to do. It's a very, very important lesson for him to learn. In a very analogous story, in fact, Jesus compares the life of John the Baptist with Elijah. You may recall John the Baptist, the last prophet really of the Old Testament, declared Jesus to be the Messiah baptized him, showed everybody who he was, and then, of course, John gets arrested after calling out the sin of King Herod. And after being in jail for a little while, he sends his disciples to Jesus and said, Jesus, are you the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? Now, to me, that's one of the most striking questions in the Gospels. Like, if any, how could John the Baptist ask that question? He just saw the heavens open and speak. This is the Son whom I love, but yet John in the midst of despair, it happens. And what does Jesus say? We'll put it on the screen. Matthew, five, Matthew chapter 11, verses five and six. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus calls out the miraculous. He says, John, you've seen it. You've seen me fulfill the prophecies. You've seen the power of God. You've seen me work as an instrument of God. Now, don't be offended. Don't be offended 
when my power isn't used to deliver you. And John wasn't delivered. In fact, he was beheaded. We know one day John will receive the reward of the martyr. But John had to learn this step of ministry too. If you want to be God's minister, you have to be content with being a servant. It's not always going to make sense. It makes sense in God's mind. Just trust him. So, we've discussed being an instrument. We've discussed being a servant. The third phase in this story is becoming God's friend. John 15, 15, we can put that on the screen. Jesus speaking, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Well, Ahab and Jezebel continued on in their sin for some time to come, and you may know the story how ultimately Ahab and Jezebel plotted a scheme to take the land of this man. He was a righteous man uh, named Naboth. And um, they basically slander him and have him killed in order to get his land, which, of course, angered God very greatly. So he sent Elijah, his minister, his servant, go tell Elijah that I saw that, and there's judgment. And it was a harsh judgment. He talked about how their blood would be licked up in the very field that you took from Naboth. He talked about how the dogs would eat Jezebel. I mean, it's, a, it's like a heavy-duty judgment. And so I no doubt Elijah was delighted to go and deliver that message. Uh, but something interesting happens. 1 Kings chapter 21. Let's look here at these verses. 1 Kings chapter 21. We'll read verses 27 through 29. And it says, So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. You know, of all the different ways men have tried to derive to try to get God to do something or try to convince him to do something we want him to do, the, this little lesson from Ahab will tell you the two most effective things you can do. Humble yourself and repent. I mean, if there's anybody in the Bible who doesn't deserve God's mercy, like Ahab is top of the list but even Ahab, when he humbles himself and repents, that gets God's attention. Now, this particular passage, it's, it, God is speaking to Elijah, but he doesn't tell Elijah necessarily to go and tell that to Ahab. It's as if God is just letting Elijah in on something. You see, Elijah, even though he's being God's instrument, even though he's being God's minister, Elijah is still struggling with why God's doing what he's doing. And isn't it fascinating that God reveals to Elijah here something about himself? Elijah, you have to understand my heart is bent on mercy and I show mercy. And he's telling Elijah why the judgment is delayed. God is bringing Elijah to a place where he's becoming a friend. You know, over the past several years, I've 
you know, after kind of hitting my wall, I've sort of processed a lot of the deaths and a lot of the different things with the kids, uh, some of the, you know, really discouraging things with the Lord. And, and one of the things that struck me several months ago was just how faithful God had been in each of their lives. I started looking at all those kids who died, and I said, you know, they understood the gospel. I'd seen times where I prayed and God would answer something. There was a phase just about six months ago where it was like, I don't know, the kids, they'd almost gotten superstitious. Whatever I prayed for happened, and they just all knew it on the unit. It It was just God's way of showing them his realness. There was a young man there who... He was from Worcester, and he was about to go back. He'd only been there a few weeks, but he was coming to my Bible studies, and the clinicians were there, and the staff were there, and he was telling me how he's about to leave, and I, he wanted prayer, and I just said, you know what? I don't think you're ready to go yet. I think you've got to hear the gospel more. You're, you've just begun. And I said, are you okay with me praying against this? He's like, I don't know. You know, he's from Worcester. And so I just prayed in faith, And all of a sudden, those plans fell apart, and he was stuck there in Boston for the next two or three months. And then after that, we had many meetings. He came to all the Bible studies. He understood the gospel very well. He was considering repenting. And then the thing came up again. You know, should should I go? I said, you know, I think this time God's going to ask you to decide on your own. So I just prayed for him that he had wisdom. And he still was dabbling with his old life. He could have stayed in Boston, but he chose to go back to Worcester. And about a month later, he was shot. But he had seen, God had been faithful. That kid had seen the hand of God. And the other kids on the unit saw it and understood it. Back in February, some of you, if you follow the city news, you heard about that story about the Braintree shooting. There was a kid who was murdered in the mall in Braintree. So that was a young man who I had worked with for many years. He was there apparently with his girlfriend and his child. And um, I got a call on my phone. I wasn't watching the news, but I got a call on my phone from someone I hadn't talked to in years, like 15 minutes after it happened. He's like, I just want you to know this kid, he just got shot and they're taking him to the hospital. I just wanted you to know so you could pray for him or whatever. So, you know, I prayed for him. I was praying for God's mercy in his life and Tried to reach out some people who might have a contact. I'd met his mother before in a court hearing. Couldn't get a hold of anybody. And then, you know, after praying, I went about my day. I don't remember exactly what I was doing. I was on the computer that night, and th- uh, this exact experience hasn't happened to me before. It was kind of the first time, but it's like I just felt the presence of God in this distinctly concentrated way, like a ball of energy right in front of me. And it was as if God was telling me, I didn't hear a voice, but it was very clear to me to stop what I'm doing, that we're about to have a conversation about this young man who's in the hospital. And so I stopped what I was doing and I began to pray and just talk with God. And, you know, I'd worked with him for many years. He'd been in and out of jail multiple times. And I just, in my prayer, I was thanking God for all the ways God had been faithful to him. I just recounting off all these different things God had done to show him that he was real. And yet this guy kept going back to the same kind of gang life. And I just, I said to the Lord, you know, Lord, you've been so faithful. If there's any chance he'll repent, I ask you to save him. But if he's just not going to ever repent, then it's sort of pointless. If it's time for him to go, God, then, then it's his day. And, um, I finished that prayer. There wasn't any loud voices. I didn't 
fall on my face for 12 hours or any other kind of crazy thing. That was it. I just got back up and went back to doing what I was doing. And the next morning I read in the news that he died. And for me, that was so amazing that God would show up and have that conversation with me. It was kind of like Abraham when God had already decided to judge the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he allowed Abraham to kind of argue with him almost. It was like he was helping Abraham to process what he was about to do. And God wants to bring us to places as a minister where we're more than an instrument, where we're more than a servant, but we also become his friend and we start to really trust him and understand why he does what he does. So all that to say, I share that really because serving the Lord is a wonderful experience. It's not just what necessarily the people you minister to may be benefited from, but it's also the work that God wants to do in your own life as he takes you to these different phases and teaches you of his character and who he is. And that's important for all of us, whether you're called to do youth prison ministry or whether you're called to be a father or a mother or any other capacity, God wants to lead you into those places. I can happily tell you that I actually, after 13 years, I'm delighted doing prison ministry, and I'm, I'm very happy. I've just felt like I've developed a peace in it that I don't have to worry about the outcomes. Outcomes are God's problem. My job is to just be faithful into what he's called me to. So, I want to call the worship team up. We're going to have some prayer couples come up here. We're, we're sort of nearing the end. We're going to have one closing song. If anything I've said is stirred in your heart, if you need prayer for anything, if you're stuck in any phase of your, your life or, or, or whatever it may be, come up and get prayer. Um, I, we've gone a little bit late today. Some of you with kids over in the Sunday school in the nursery, maybe one parent could go um, grab the child. But we're going to have prayer couples up here. You can stay as long as you want to pray with folks. I will, uh, I will stay up here as well. Anything you need prayer for, please come up. In fact, I'm going to pray over us while the worship team is getting set up. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Father, after creating everything, Lord, after seeing us sin and mess up, after saving us from our wickedness, from my wickedness and my sin, Lord, after just ongoing failures, Lord, to see you pushing forward in a relationship, God, where you would want to call me a friend, Lord, that's just mind-blowing. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us, speak to my heart in a way God, where your friendship would be more valuable to us than anything else, Lord. Transform us. Transform us by that kind of love that the God of the universe wants to be our friend. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.